For too long, the fertility market has been bewildering, overwhelming, and frankly, I think has downright ignored the needs and difficult experiences of the people they're supposed to be serving. Ovum has made it their mission to change this completely. Now, I am extremely choosy about who I promote on this podcast because I'm very protective of my listeners and audience, which is why you've probably only ever heard one spoken ad like this before. So it's with complete confidence, excitement and pride that I can share this amazing company with you. Ovum care about you, truly. From creating products to support conception and fertility that are designed by doctors and backed by the latest science without cutting any corners, from adding access to meditations I've personally written and recorded inside their pregnancy test boxes, Ovum is founded by individuals who've navigated infertility themselves. I really couldn't be more proud to partner with them and tell you about them. Ovum is driven by the belief that everyone who is trying to conceive deserves better, and I am 100% behind this ethos. So head over to startwithovum.com and use code LIFERAFT10 for 10% off their tests and supplements. Hello and welcome back to Fertility Life Raft with me, Alice Rose. It's the third episode of the second series. Um, First things first, please excuse my rather husky tones this morning. I've been to a few events this week and this appears to be the result, so apologies for that. Hopefully it'll be back to normal next week. I'm really excited to bring the amazing Dr Zoe Williams onto the podcast today. She was someone I actually grew up watching on my telly growing up because she was part of a very kind of brilliant, I suppose pretty quirky British TV show called Gladiators and she was known as Amazon. (laughs) My mind was like blown when I realised the connection of who Dr Zoe was Um, but she is just a really inspiring, brilliant woman and I can't wait for you to listen to the chat that we had. We cover such a range of topics and she's also going to share her personal story, which we'll get into. Before we do that, amongst other bits and bobs, this week I was invited to the presentation of the launch of a brand new campaign by Tommy's, the baby charity, called Tell Me Why. And this is all about trying to fund research in order to give people answers as to why they may have miscarried or gone into premature labour or had a stillbirth. And the presentations that they gave were absolutely extraordinary. The research that they do is making real progress. So I asked the host of the launch, who was none other than Giovanna Fletcher, to tell me why she was supporting it. Well, I've been supporting Tommy's for a few years. Um, my When I first got pregnant um, six years ago, that ended in miscarriage. And at the time, I knew nothing about Tommy's or you know, anything that they do and all the research, the important research that they do to find, you know, to look into miscarriage and preterm, uh, premature birth and stillbirth and stuff. And, I, and, I, and at the time, I felt very alone. And, um, and it's only actually years later that they invited me along to something that, you know, it was kind of... For me, timing-wise, I'd only just at that point, three years later, started talking about even having a miscarriage. Because I think, it, for me, it was something that I was really ashamed of and I felt like it was my fault. And, um, yeah, it was just something that people didn't talk about back then. Well, for me, anyway. And um, so I started working with Tommy's then. And ever since then, I think the research, research they do is so important. And, and simply the tell me why 
think all of us have those questions when we go through something like that. And, um, and, you, and it's the blame and it's the guilt that we then carry forever and actually re- realising that we all have those questions and actually it's not your fault. Your body has done nothing wrong. I mean, I'm very open about the fact that when I did go through a miscarriage, I had so much anger and I was angry for months, you know, having people tell me, oh, maybe you should go on this diet, maybe you should do that. And I was like, why? I'm so angry. And it's actually only when I started releasing a little bit of that that I could even cope with my grief. Um, so, for, yeah, for me, realising that a lot of us uh, are in the same boat or we've got those feelings or that there's something that we can all share and that we should be kinder to ourselves and to other people. You know, if, if you knew someone that was going through something like that, you'd give them so much kindness. So why aren't we giving that kindness to ourselves? Um, so for me, bringing people together so that those conversations aren't a taboo is really important. But also getting behind Tommy so that more research can be done. Because even being here today and realising that so many things can be prevented, you know. We've all been we've all had that thing where it's, oh, it's just one of those things. Oh, it wasn't really a pregnancy, was it? It was only your first few weeks. It's heartbreaking. Um, and, uh, and we've kind of made it the norm in our head that those things happen. And being here today, it makes you realise that it's actually not and that we have to push for more research so that we can find out the reasons why. Dr Brooke van der Molen was also there, otherwise known as the Obgin Mum on Instagram, and she gave me her thoughts too. The hardest part of my job is not having an answer to give somebody. And then this idea, yeah, that, that actually they could have been prevented, that we could have done something about it if we can give somebody a reason and then prevent it from happening again. So I think, you know, I'm here because I really, really want to help them to find answers, both emotionally for women to kind of go away and have that answer and be able to tell themselves it's not my fault, but also that we can make a difference to the future. So I think, yeah, exactly. It's, it's really hard. And I do think one loss is just, you know, is very, very significant and shouldn't be dismissed you know of course it's tragic when you hear about people with their five losses or more but we we can start even early in you know earlier losses and that hopefully people don't need to reach that stage so to find out more about tell me why and that is the hashtag as well hashtag tell me why go to the tommy's website tommy's.org where you can find out all about it they are doing really extraordinary work and We have to keep talking about this stuff so that people recognise that it's important to fund the research that they're doing. Um, So go and have a look and do share the campaign if you if you can. Um, So just before I get to play this week's feature interview with Dr Zoe, I did want to share as well that since the last episode, when I was bemoaning the fact that single mothers had been described as a burden to society, and this this headline had had kind of hit pretty much every um, publication, uh, print print and and online, Um, I'm really delighted to say that thanks to official complaints made and organisation by uh, people who were absolutely as outraged as many of us were by those comments there's been an apology from the absolute donkeys who said who said it in the first place (laughs) that's the official term by the way um for people who say daft things this is the apology that they uh have issued I would like to apologise on behalf of NHS commissioners in South East London for any offence and distress caused by both the wording in the South East London Treatment Access Policy in relation to single women's access to IVF treatment and the review document it refers to, said Andrew Bland, the accountable officer for the NHS South East London Commissioning Alliance, in his letter of reply to the women's objection. 
We agree this wording is not acceptable and we will take action to address this as we conduct a rapid review of the policy in relation to access criteria for funding IVF. So let's just hope that the review actually looks at the facts this time instead of arbitrary generalised ideas plucked from who knows where. But I did think that was great that there has been a response and that they have apologised and they've recognised that what they said was just ridiculous. Anyway, over now to my brilliant guest Zoe. Um, first things first, I asked if she could introduce herself. First and foremost, I'm a GP and that's kind of, I always say to people, it's not just what I do, it's kind of who I am. Um, but I have quite a diverse career as a GP, so I do my cl clinical work, but I also have several non-clinical roles, um, which involve mostly educating other healthcare professionals about physical activity and lifestyle. So I work with Public Health England, the Royal College of GPs and my local CCG, Clinical Commissioning Group, which is the sort of local NHS body. And then I also do some work in the media as well. So um, my sort of regular gigs are, I'm one of the doctors on This Morning and BBC Two's Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, and then do other bits and bats when I get the opportunity. And then I also co-founded a not-profit organisation called Fit for Life, where we work with children from disadvantaged backgrounds to help them improve their lives essentially through co-creating physical activity interventions with them. So lots going on. So much going on and it's amazing like the kind of waving the flag for lifestyle and fitness is fab and obviously background in gladiators yes. which is so cool. Like, I was like <laughs> oh my god of course like when I was you know when I getting to know who you were like kind of last year and then I was like Oh, that's how I know your face. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so 10 years ago now, I can't believe it's 10 years, when Skybound brought back Gladiators, I was very lucky to get the opportunity to be an actual gladiator. It took a year out of medicine to do that. Um, and yeah, still still feels a bit like a dream, really. I mean, did that really happen? I guess it did. It just looked like the most fun TV programme ever to be able to grow up, grew up watching that and just absolutely loved it. Um, but that's amazing that you're, you're one of those kind of, you know, you're a high achiever type, aren't you? I don't know. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I am. I, well, I have achieved a lot, but I don't see myself... I don't know, it's a bit of a weird one. I'm definitely I'm definitely not one of those sort of class A personalities who must always come top of the class, who must always be perfect. I'm not that's not my personality at all. I think rather than that, it's more that I'm brave and I have this ethic about life that opportunities will not come and lay themselves down in front of you. You've got to search for them. And if you see even the glimmer of an opportunity you've got to grab it with both hands and I think that's really, I think we all get opportunities and it's whether you're brave enough to seek them out and stamp on them and claim them and I think that's probably the, the key to my success, that and some luck along the way. I love that so much and I think I definitely struggled with not being brave enough for a long time and only actually, funnily enough, through my fertility journey, through doing so much self-development and work, I kind of discovered that about myself which yeah. is completely transformed my life you know and I was like I can do so much more if I just step into who I could potentially be kind of thing yeah and it's amazing and I keep seeing that in this TTC community since I've come to it and become involved in it not in the way that you are but you know kind of a little bit um I'm meeting so many inspiring incredible people out of 
who've made something amazing out of what is actually a really shit situation. A really shit situation. <laughs> Let's talk about your involvement with the community and also yeah. your personal story that we're going to get a bit into now. So um, you've been you've presented at Fertility Fest as as a GP or no you were talking about your own story yes, weren't you? Yes that's right yeah yeah so talking about my own stories I've done a couple of panels um, and really talking about the social infertility side of things so I'm a 39 year old woman who's always wanted to be a mum and always thought really <clears throat> from the age of 30 you know I'm ready ready to go um, but just have never been in a position with a partner to, to make that happen. So now I'm kind of faced with, you know, the old time's running out sort of thing. What am I going to do? Um, and yeah, so that, I think on the panels, I've sort of been the person representing that story. So what has your involvement been so far with fertility treatment and how did you make the decision to go for it because I know you have gone through a round of treatment I think it's one round I'm not sure one round of egg freezing yeah so I mean it goes back to me being 34 years old and I came out of a long-term relationship and my mum was the one who was saying you should freeze your eggs and my response to that was you know I'm the doctor in the family I know what I'm doing I have loads of time um no need to worry about it. Actually, in hindsight, she was 100% right and I should have listened. So fast forward four years, mum actually passed away. And um, a couple of weeks after that, I was contacted by The One Show to present an item on egg freezing. How bizarre. Mm. And um, I've never worked for The One Show before and I've never worked for them since. Now, I don't know whether I believe in people, the afterlife and all of that, but it did seem a bit strange that I was contacted out of the blue. And, um, and I actually said to the producer, I said, oh, how did you know that egg freezing is something that has been on my mind? I've procrastinated it, about it ever since mum planted that seed. And she said, oh, we, we didn't. Are you happy to talk about the fact that it's something you're considering? So I spent the whole day making this film about egg, egg freezing, um, went to a clinic, saw how the process was done, talked about the statistics, um, then also met with a lawyer who was somewhat against egg freezing or the cautions around egg freezing, spoke to a woman who'd been through it. So was in a very, very privileged position at the end of that day to make up my mind as to what I should do. And I made up my mind and it was, I need to do this as soon as possible, should have done it sooner. So, so then I went on and, and did the round of egg freezing and I do think maybe it was a little message from above because when I had the initial tests, <clears throat> as someone who's always been quite fit and healthy and, you know, I've always kind of done pretty well at things I've applied myself to, when I did the AMH and the, the scan, going into those tests, I was quite nervous thinking, you know, I just hope I'm not going to get the news that it's already too late and I can't have a baby of my own. But I kind of, the only other thought was, oh, they're probably going to turn around and say, oh, you know, you've got the, the egg reserve of a 28 year old or something like that quite arrogantly. So when she gave me the news, which really was, you know, pretty standard news, she said, for your age of 38, which is how old I was at the time, for your age of 38, you're just below average. And I was like, what? Mm. She went, just, just below average for your age. I've never been just below average. Yes. Are, you, are you sure? <laughs> I think you're part of it. And she said, well, let's just say it's a good job that you're doing this now. And that was a real wake-up call. And 
when I was going through the egg freezing process, I did ask the question, I said, if, I, if I'd have done this five years sooner, what would the difference in outcome be? And they said, well, we'd probably be giving you a lower dose of drugs and your yield of eggs would probably be perhaps as much as double as what we're likely to get. Yeah. So I got seven eggs, which is, again, it's fine, which, again, I don't necessarily like, but <laughs> should be grateful. So I got seven eggs. I have seven eggs on ice. Mm -hmm. and, and after that, I felt... I felt quite good through the whole process. I felt definitely like 100% I was doing the right thing. And I'd hoped that afterwards it would somewhat alleviate the pressure and think, right, I've bought myself some time. Because um, obviously dating when you're single and this is on your mind, it's, it adds another level of complexity. So I thought it's going to take the pressure off. But it hasn't because although, you know, it was a reasonable round of egg freezing, the chances of those seven eggs giving me a baby, if I was to go back and use them in a few years, is probably less than 30%. Mm -hmm. And for me, 30% is not good enough odds. So basically, those eggs are not that like I'm more likely to not be able to have a baby from those eggs than, than have a baby. So really, I don't feel I'm that much better off. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really interesting then. So at the time, you, you definitely thought, yes, this is the right decision. And in hindsight, do you still think it was the right thing to do, even though you feel as you do now? I still think it was the right thing to do, because I don't think I would have come to this conclusion where I'm, the point where, where I'm at now, had I not done that first. It was the first it was the correct first step. Um, and yeah, absolutely it was the right thing to do. But but now it still left me thinking, okay, well, I need to do something else. <laughs> so what is your thinking now? Are you gonna progress? Yeah, so I'm I'm I had a very interesting moment um, a few months after that where I was asked by the fertility, the fertility Counselling Association. So every clinic has a fertility counsellor and I think there are maybe 50 fertility counsellors around the country, so it's quite a small organisation. And, um, and because I'd talked about my egg freezing and my social infertility situation quite publicly, they said, would you be kind enough to come along to one of our meetings and be our case study? They said, the way for us to learn as a group the best way is if we have a case study, study, but obviously because of confidentiality, we can't, it's very difficult for us to, to ask people, but because you've already been public. So I said, yeah, of course. So I went along, I think it was on a Saturday morning, kind of thinking I was, this was an act of giving, mm -hmm. um, but actually to sit with 20, I think about 25 people there on the day, with 25 fertility counsellors in a circle around you, all focused on you, is, wow, what an opportunity. Yeah. So I told them the whole story and they asked some very, you know, pertinent counsellor-style open questions um, and they managed to draw a lot of thoughts out of me, things that I hadn't... Think I, it got me to look at things in a slightly different way. And I think my issue, which I'm sure is very common with women in my situation, was that I was struggling to let go of the dream. I've always had, like most women do, you know, the dream is to fall in love, um, get pregnant, have a child that is the sum of its parts and, you know, be a family. And I think especially in my case, my own childhood, there were a lot of things that had happened in my childhood that made me crave that even more. So I came from a broken home and I had a happy childhood, but my parents were always at each other. 
So I used to spend a lot of time with, with friends and see the happy family. And in my mind, that's what a happy family is because I would always be with them on days out or on holidays or when they're on, you know, the family is sat around the table and smiling at each other even though they might be cross. I guess I never saw the reality of a family. I only saw the good bits. So I have this very idealistic view of what a family should be and that's what I've always craved and I've always accepted that I would be the mother within that unit. So to give that up is very difficult and very painful. So I think there was one counsellor who probably quite bravely said, can I just ask you a very direct question, Zoe? And she said, what if you can't have both? And if you can't have both, which one is more painful to grieve for? The loss of that family that you've always dreamed of or not being a mother? And I was like, what an incredible question. Because to me, the answer immediately mm. was just staring me clear in the face that not being a mother is much more painful. And then they all kind of, nobody said anything, but they all kind of looked at me with that look as to say, just get on and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So that was last, was that last year, did you say? Or was that earlier? Um, so that was last year. That was last year, okay. Yeah, so that would have been so around towards the end of last year, maybe October, November time. To go back a little bit further, when you did decide to be quite public about talking about your egg freezing, what was that like, kind of being really open about it? Because I know that you've been saying there is a stigma around that and yeah. we need to change that. Yeah, so the reason I chose to be open about it was really, I guess I felt a responsibility. When I made that film for the one show about egg freezing, and in that moment when I realised that this is definitely something I should do. And reflecting back on mum, who had no medical knowledge whatsoever, but she was right, I just thought, well, if I'm a doctor, I'm a GP, I'm a bit of a nosy so-and-so, so I'm always in everyone's business. I've got great friends and we talk about everything, though we've never talked about this. Um, I thought if, I'm, if I actually wasn't well informed to make that decision and it's taken me making this five, six minute documentary to feel that I am well enough informed. What chance does the average woman have? Mm -hmm. And, you know, egg freezing is something that it is available. Yes, it's expensive. But if I didn't know that that was the right decision. So I kind of felt a responsibility therefore to, to share that, um, just to really inform women. And I think I was kind of really targeting my advice to two groups of women. Mm -hmm. um, probably the women who were beyond me, so it was older than me or had fertility chances that were less than mine, to say, you know, don't be sucked up by this industry. Make sure you do your research. Make sure you know those statistics. Don't throw money at the situation until you know what the chances are so you can make an informed choice about that because the chances of success beyond a certain point are so low. Um, and I know Holly Willoughby, when I spoke about this on this morning, she said if it was a 1% chance and I was in your position, I'd do it because what if I'm that 1 in 100? And that's fine as long as you know that that's your chances. Yeah. But also to the women who are in the position, you know, my 34, 35-year-old self saying... If actually you definitely 100% want to be a mother and you're in your 30s, then don't necessarily rush out and freeze your eggs, but start informing yourself about it. Mm. And I even think, you know, I put that on deposit for a house when I was 36. 
uh, in hindsight, because the house prices stopped rising as well, I probably should have used that money to freeze eggs then and then, you know, save up again. I should have done it the other way around and hindsight's a wonderful thing. But yeah, the message was really to people at the other end, you know, speaking to my 35 year old self saying, actually, listen to your mother and give this some thought. How do you feel now having been through that and your mum isn't around at the moment now? Does that, do you sort of feel that sense of like, I've, I've done it now, mum, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you told, do you think it was your mum that really put that, as you say, planted the seed? I think I did, I felt gratitude. Yeah. I think I did feel some gratitude. And also I thought, mm, you know, maybe you did have more wisdom than I gave you mm. credit for. I think having, not having mum around, I mean, I won't go into it on here, but my, relationship with well we had a very close relationship but my mum had a lot of health problems and she had some mental health problems as well so you know had I had a baby she was never going to be you know a main carer of that child but I think embarking on being a solo parent without your mum that's something I've really had to it's something I've had to give a lot of thought to because whenever you speak, the, the solo mums that I have been in touch with, not all, but most of them would say, you know, my mum really helped. I couldn't have done it without my mum sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, kind of skipping ahead there. Yeah, yeah, so I guess, okay, so if we come into now, mm -hmm. you are thinking now that you will go ahead and do a round of IVF. Yes, I'm thinking that I am. I'm not sure when, um, at the moment, I feel like I've made that decision, which was, I think, was the difficult thing to do, was make that decision. And I'm almost just letting the dust settle, just letting that decision nestle in. And also, I'm starting to, to plan a little bit for the future as well, thinking, well, how am I going to make this work? And also, I talk to people about it all the time. It's been, I just bring it up all the time and tell people. I think the more that those words come out of my mouth, the more it kind of reassures me that I am doing the right thing. And it normalises it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's normal. It's normal. It should be normal to talk about this stuff. And it's... It so should. And for me, speaking about it publicly, I don't know what response other people have had, but I've had 99 plus percent positive feedback. And I haven't really had any negative feedback. I haven't had anything, anyone saying, you know, you're wrong or you're selfish or anything like that. I have had some people saying, you know, are you sure? Um, do you know how hard that will be? And, you know, words of warning. But the feedback has been so positive. And so many of my close friends, especially those that have had babies in the past year, so they're sort of going through the lack of sleep and they've said, right, you know, I will do this and this will be my role and every Friday night I will come so you can get a rest and you know pledging their support. That's amazing, <laughs> that's really really amazing because I think that's that solid that sort of sisterhood solidarity thing as well isn't it that once I mean you've got really close friends who are you know going through that first year of motherhood and yeah they, they, will, they will be there for you 100% wouldn't they? Yeah. Um, okay so if you if you decide if you make the decision you're going to go through this round of IVF, how do you feel about that right now? Do you feel excited about that or are you kind of, you know, taking your time as you say and just... I feel a lot of apprehension at the moment and and sometimes I think I mustn't let that get the better of me because I'm sure that's also the same with couples. You know, you can always find lots of reasons why not. Um, and if you always wait, you know, if you wait for the balance to tip, 
then there'll always be something. So I feel a lot of apprehension and I've, I think over the last few months actually, I've been able to pinpoint exactly what my concerns are. And for me, I think it's the loneliness that I fear more than anything. So, I mean, I'll give you, this is me. So I bought a flat, a one bedroom flat, as I was saying, you know, I put the deposit down when I was 36, lived in it for two years and realized that I was miserable living on my own. Um, so I was on holiday with a friend and came back and moved into a six person house share really? and rented out my flat. So that's me, I like to be around people. And obviously I can't live in a six person house share if I'm gonna embark on solo motherhood. So I think that's one of the things that really scares me is the loneliness of, of being pregnant and maybe not being able to do the things that I do to socialize now during the pregnancy. And also after the baby's born, spending so much time on my own and I think I might have come up with a potential solution. Oh, <laughs> tell us, what is it? Well, I'm just thinking I'm probably not the only woman out there who has this same dilemma and I do live in a six person house share currently and we have this huge beautiful home with a massive garden and because there's six of us it's so affordable and for me to move out and maybe get a two bedroom place, I'll be paying probably about double as to what I'm paying now. And I was thinking, what about if three mums lived in six, the six bedroom house, all in the same situation, we could share a living nanny, we could get a night nurse a couple of nights a week, we could take shifts, you know, mundane, I'll do the Monday night and look after all the babies, we'd have a nursery. Um, and we'd all pitch in, and I think it, you know it's a bit like a commune, but a modern commune. I so love it. if anyone's out there <laughs> and you're thinking you want to do this, then I'm thinking that would I, I think that would eliminate all of my current barriers towards getting on with this. I thought I was afraid of being lonely for not having a man. It's not. It's just the loneliness. Yeah. Yeah, 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 so it's not the relationship that you're craving, it's just the being around people. I mean, the relationship would be the ultimate goal, but yeah. I think I've kind of accepted now that that's not going to happen. Even the last person that I was dating, um, I sort of said to him early on, rather than, you know, I want us to have a baby soon, I was saying, look, I'm almost definitely going to embark on this solo motherhood journey, and you need to know that, and if we're getting into this, then that's probably gonna happen in the next 12 months. And if by the time comes, we're in a place where, you know, you say, stop, use my sperm, then, you know, that is a possibility, but there's no pressure on you. But equally, I'm not gonna stop doing that because I've met you mm -hmm. and, you know, that didn't work out. So there we are. So I kind of, I've, I've accepted that the family thing isn't gonna happen. I'm doing this on my own. And if I could eliminate that, fear of loneliness then I was like yeah let's do it let's go oh, such an amazing idea <laughs> how amazing would that be like if you find the right if you found the right people and you did that and everyone was just there for each other and also I was chatting to friends about it and it's like I'm like living with other women when you go on a hen do and you cook a big breakfast and then you know you do one thing you know I thought I'll scrape all the plates off and 15 minutes later it's all done the place is spick and spam and I just think I've, I've always lived with other people always got on well with other people. Um, I think I'm probably quite easy to get on with and fairly tolerant. So 
So yeah, so, looking for advertising here, <laughs> ideally London, um, possibly willing to move. <laughs> Such a good point though, because I guess that fear, like pinpointing what it is that would hold you back is quite a useful exercise to do, isn't it? And then yeah. going, is that enough to stop me from actually doing this? Yeah. What's more important, actually having a baby? Um, so you, you've gone through some fertility testing and that's come back quite positive. So it looks like hopefully everything should be fine. Yeah, I mean, you never know, do you? Mm. But um, from from the, the tests that I can have done, there mm. doesn't seem to be anything anything wrong. Other than that fact that I'm slightly below average for my age, but <laughs> I have to let that go. <laughs> I suppose one kind of weird advantage of doing it this way is that you get to... I mean, I, I'm assuming that only men with high quality sperm are allowed to donate right that they, they have to have screening and they have to yeah. you you know that if you're going to get some sperm it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be good quality it's stuff be good quality. Yeah. yeah yeah whereas if you just get together with any old not any old guy <laughs> you don't like screen them before you get well, well exactly sperm, well exactly yes. so you know there's still the potential um, for male factors, isn't there? So yes, yeah, the donor sperm, you're getting decent, yeah, get decent take, stuff. Yeah, I mean, really, this sounds all quite appealing to me, to be honest. <laughs> and then people say, will you use your eggs? And I'm like, no, no, I don't regret doing that because they'll be there for the next, well, it's coming these 10 years, isn't it? But but they'll be there, maybe baby number two, you know, maybe I won't want another child, but maybe I want baby number two. If I decided I definitely didn't want other children, I'd really happily donate them. Um, but I think no. Whilst I can still produce eggs, yeah, use use those and keep keep the ones on ice and yeah. just in case. Um, so this is the fertility life raft podcast, mm -hmm. and I guess I always try and ask people that I speak to what would their advice be to people who are in a similar situation to you. You know, you're sitting here and you're so kind of confident you're so like you really are owning your life right now aren't you you're like this is what's happening in my life this is what I'm gonna do you know so how can how what would you say to someone who's kind of going I wish I wish I could do that but I'm holding back for whatever yeah. reason um and I do I do understand that I do understand the other side because I as a doctor I have patients and there's some pe people carry so much shame like you know as if it's their fault or they've done something wrong and you know it, there is all this stigma and so my advice is get rid of that and, and own it when I was going through the egg freezing when I was going in for the clinic clinic appointments um doing it on my own the first time the first time I was in that clinic and I was looking around and it was all couples I felt so terribly sad and I thought right how do I pull myself out of this and I thought, you need to have positive thoughts. So my positive out of that was that, well, these poor couples are here because they have biological reasons why they're not able to conceive without support. I don't have that. As far as I know, I don't have that. I'm here because I don't have a partner and I'm doing something really proactive. So I gave myself a pat on the back. When I was doing the injections of the hormones, what I found really helpful was I filmed it. I got, I've got all that content. Um, which if I want to share, I can share. And I found that really empowering to be talking to the camera and saying, you know, I'm doing this. I don't need to do this. I've made the decision and I am doing this. And also for me, sharing and the positive responses that I got back. So sharing with family and friends, but also sharing with a wider audience. And I think that positive reinforcement has really helped as well. So 
I would say my advice, your life raft to cling on to, is just put it out there. Put it out to this community first, which is really, really safe. Put it out to one friend, one family member, which is safe. And then use the positive responses you get from them to give you confidence to go one step further and one step further. And I think the wider you share it, the, the better you'll feel. I love that. I couldn't agree more. You know, that's why I started sharing everything as well. And I just think, you know, the more that we do talk about this stuff, the more we do normalise it, the less that stigma is going to be around. And hopefully in another, you know, generation, it's just going to be so normal to talk about it and people are going to feel empowered as a result. Do you know what? I think the next generation, it is going to be normal yeah. because it's becoming, because of the way in which the world has changed, um, and the way we are becoming, it's almost one of the last stigmas, one of the last taboos, isn't it? But also, I think egg freezing, which I found really interesting when I had a chat, when I was making the documentary and I spoke to the consultant, she was telling me how she believes in the future, women in their early 20s will freeze eggs anyway, not for potential fertility issues in the future, just because if they think they're gonna have that start a family in their late 30s, they can then use a 20-year-old egg, which is sort of a self-donation in future lives. I think it's going to become so normalised in the not-too-distant future that, that you know, it, it will be easier to talk about. But well done for you, because you're a trailblazer in making those conversations start to happen. So. Thank you, Zoe. That's lovely. Um, I did just want to realise, like, you're sitting here as a, a, a medical professional as well, and I haven't even really asked you anything that could be really useful for people. I mean, we won't go into anything, you know, really in-depth or anything, but I kind of want to ask as well, like, what, what was it like going through that as a, as a medical professional? You know, you, you really must understand this probably to a greater extent than someone who doesn't have your medical background. What's that like? Um, I think it can be a help and it can be a hindrance, having that knowledge. And, and that was part of the wake-up call for me when I made this documentary, was that I learned so much on that day that I'd never been taught in medical school. I'd never been taught as a GP. And partly, perhaps partly due to the the community that I work with, I work in a very deprived area and, and I don't come across fertility um, issues that commonly. Uh, as GPs we have sort of criteria at which we refer and we give you know very general advice prior to that and egg freezing is really not something that had come up very often at all. For six months I worked in Hampstead as a GP trainee and I had lots of conversations about it, that's many years ago. Um, so, so I think I realised that actually there was a real gap in my knowledge and I think unless, you're, unless you're, your doctor is or nurse is somebody who specialises in gynaecology or fertility, I think it's safe to assume that their knowledge is very minimal in this area. That's actually a really good point and even as I was asking that question I was thinking, mm, thinking about it when I went to my GP you know, actually what I really needed was some advice about PCOS and lifestyle and all of those things, but, yeah. but, but I didn't get that because I don't think she knew about it. Yeah. What, how can, what, what's going on there with the GP's, GP knowledge? I mean, I know it's so difficult, isn't it? Because you yeah. it's vast amount of stuff you need well, to... That's right. We get, I get asked this quite a lot in various different spheres, often in sort of nutrition and lifestyle spheres as well. So, you know, how... How do we make sure that GPs keep up to date with all the changing current guidelines when it comes to diet and nutrition? It's like, they won't, mm. actually. Mm. Um, GPs are specialists. They're specialists at being generalists. 
And what I always say, and I know you can't see my hands if you're listening to this, but <laughs> an orthopaedic surgeon who specialises in the wrist joint knows this much, my hands are far apart, about this much, my hands are very narrow. Mm-hmm. Whereas the art of being a GP is knowing this much, very narrow, about this much, and knowing where to find further information for the patient and where to signpost to and where to refer to as necessary. So when it comes to fertility, um, taking things like egg freezing aside, because also if it's not available on the NHS, then we have very limited knowledge about it because it's not something, although it'd be great if we could talk in depth about it, our, our education in that is very restricted. But when it comes to fertility, as a GP, um, what you can expect for your GP, for, we would diagnose fertility difficulties. Strictly speaking, the NICE guidelines say at two years, after two years of trying to conceive and not having success. But I think most GPs are quite sympathetic, and if you've been trying for a year or more, will think about referring you. Depending on your age, if you're in your 20s, probably not. If you're in your mid to late 30s, they probably will because of the cutoff of funding. IVF beyond 40. Um, the first question you can <laughs> expect to be asked by your GP is, well tell me about your sex life, which to somebody like yourself Alice probably seems quite condescending, um, <laughs> but you'd be surprised. Um, mm-hmm. I've had patients before who have only been having anal sex whilst trying to get pregnant and they don't know, wow. or you know, the, pe- the, the husband lives abroad and only comes to England twice a year. So, you know, so, so, so we might ask questions that seem really stupid, but there are some, there, there is a reason why. Sometimes it is pure mechanics. The mechanics of the situation are not gonna allow you to get pregnant. Um, and then things you can expect your GP to do would be blood tests, simple blood tests. Um, and yeah, a scan. That's probably about it. Yeah. So I guess actually it's, I, I think that we as individuals for whatever health situation we've got going on is actually take ownership of what's I going think so. On. I think so, yes. I think and, and the thing to I miss there is the sperm count as well. Yeah. Like always, I think we often underestimate mm. the, yeah. the percentage of, of male factors. Um, but yeah, I think if this is you, the best way to educate yourself, I think the TCC community is great. But the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, RCOG, they do a lot of resources um, for patients, patient leaflets. They also do something, if you want to read more in depth, if you're quite knowledgeable about this and you're willing to put up with some medical jargon, they also have green um, green top guidelines that are designed for healthcare professionals. Mm. And that's where you can be sure to be getting the, the most up-to-date correct factual information from the Royal College in this country around obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, and then there's also the, I can't remember what they're called, now, the fertility... Is it the hum- not the HFEA? Yes, okay. HFEA. So they tend to have the most up-to-date statistics, statistics but I'd always say take statistics with a large pinch of salt. Yeah, because there's so many weird variants and things, aren't there? That so many conflicting bit, factors, yeah. Mm, skewed and stuff. Mm-hmm. But no, that's, so that's some really good pointers for people to go to. Um, I think a major issue we have with the GP thing that people seem to have is not being listened to yeah. and not being taken maybe seriously or, you know, I campaign about what not to say and I really, you know, try and get professionals involved with that as well because yeah. it's so important that you know as we were talking about earlier just that people address things in the right way yeah 
you know, even if they don't know that much about it, to just, you know, be empathetic and listen. Yeah. I think my advice on that is always, if you feel, I think people's intentions are usually good, but they make a right mess of it, don't they? <laughs> um, and my advice about anything that is very sensitive, so whether it's the same, if it's discussing a patient's weight or whether they smoke or anything that could, that is very personal, is better to ask a question than make a statement. You know, if you ask permission to somebody, would you like to talk about this? Or is it okay to bring it up? Um, or ask somebody how they're feeling rather than tell them how they should be feeling. Yes. So a question rather than a statement yeah, is yeah, yeah. generally safer. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I would completely agree with that. And I think that is absolutely it because it's really difficult to advise on, you know, what to say because everyone does want different things actually and people react differently. And so to ask the question and just give them a little bit more ownership again of the situation is I think exactly what would really, really help within that. Situation. Yeah. So many of my friends, and it's all well intended, but um, so many of my friends say, Oh, you'll be fine, you'll be able to have babies till you're 50, you know, you're fit, you're healthy. Like, but no, it's no. not, no, that's not true. And yeah, what is help. that? So, even though obviously you, you're so knowledgeable about fitness and you obviously love it and it's a big part of your life, you know, how does that correspond with fertility? Yeah, well, I mean, my understanding of this is. Obviously, you're born, you're born with all the eggs that you'll ever have. In fact, you're born with less eggs than you had a month before you were born. And your optimal fertility, so the age, I guess, at which you can successfully have children too, the optimal age is already set. There's nothing you can really do to extend that. All you can do is shorten that period by poor lifestyle. So if you smoke, then your fertility will be younger. If you drink too much, if you have a poor diet, but there's nothing you can do to extend it. So if you've lived your life, two identical twins, and one's had a very, very, very healthy life, well, they'll have the fertility that was set at birth, and one hasn't, then, then it'll be lower. Um, so we live in a world where we're living longer, we look younger, we dress younger, like everything about life is being pushed forwards and our ovaries are just like, we don't give a shit about that. We're still gonna pack up when we were designed to pack up. Um, and therefore, you know, they're the anomaly. They don't fit with society's changes. They, you know. Mm. So I think that's the, that's the struggle is our ovaries are, they're sort of they don't care about the changes in society. Everything. They're just like, no, we're going to hold our own. Yeah. We're still going to pack in at 40. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, it's just so depressing. Oh no, it's not. It's fine. It's fine. As long as you're educated, right? And as long as you're knowing, you know, as you say, what, what, what you're doing. Yeah. To make those informed decisions. I think that's the thing. And I just feel that I have a responsibility to, to women younger than me, you know, from the age of, I think, I actually think children who are doing sex education in school nowadays should be taught about fertility as well because brilliant it's great that um teenage pregnancy not that teenage pregnancy is always a bad thing but teenage pregnancy rates have been going down steadily and steadily and steadily over many many years and that they're, they're at the lowest is that the lowest rate it's ever been whereas infertility is going up and up and up and up and i think it's something like one in ten women um go beyond the age of 40 without a child now so school education about sex and pregnancy and fertility 
it's moved on in the past 12 months in that it is now necessary. Um, but I think we, girls shouldn't just, girls and boys shouldn't just be being taught how not to get pregnant. They should also be taught about the realities of getting pregnant. So important. So important, um, yeah, I, yeah I, I couldn't agree more. I just, yeah, it's, it is quite shocking how, how little people understand actually about it. Yeah. And I guess, I, you know, I talk about this stuff all the time, so I sort of forget that it's kind of second nature to me to know about this stuff. Yeah. And also with male, male fertility and making sure that they are very much part of the conversation, yeah. you know, girls and boys are taught, not just girls, you know, and that needs, definitely needs to have a radical yeah. shift, doesn't it? I sometimes feel a bit sorry for the men in all of this because we always tend to say, oh, it's all right for them, they can go on to whatever age and what have you, but I have a, a good friend of mine, Tim, he's the same age as me, and we used to joke about it, actually, when we were younger, we'd always say, if we get to the age of 30 and we're both single, we'll just have a baby together. And then we're like, if we get to 35 and we're both single, we'll just have a baby together. And now we're both 39 and he's like, um, <laughs> and we have had conversations about it, but we don't think it's a good idea. Um, but for him, he doesn't have the options that I have. So I have the option of egg freezing. I have the option of solo parenthood. Um, and he wants to be a young dad. He wants to have, multi he wants to have multiple children. He wants to have a big family. That's what he's always wanted. And for him, you know, the options are very, very limited. So in some ways, I think, you know, we do have to deal with all the shit, but equally, at least we have the choices. I completely agree. And I was actually thinking about that the other day. I was like, actually, it's really, really difficult if you're a guy and you haven't met the right person, isn't it? Yeah. You know, they don't, they don't have the oven. So exactly. what are you going to do? I mean, I suppose there's just paying thousands for a surrogate. Yeah. But again, that's, you know, just another barrier, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much again. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been such a pleasure, and yeah, um, maybe we can have you back on to talk about some other stuff as you go through. Yeah, I may have a bun in the oven then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>how inspiring and smart is this woman i i just love her energy and her motivation to just live her best life and be the best person she can be and i thought she was um an amazing person to bring on the podcast and i hope you agree i hope you love that interview um if you did please let me know and share it with your friends who might also find some of the things she said in there helpful as well. If you've got any questions, then please do get in touch. I really do love hearing from you. It really, really makes my day whenever I get a message from anyone who's listened to this podcast and they want to um, engage with me. I just, it, it, it really, that's why I do this. So um, come and find me on social media. I am at this is Alice Rose on all of them, but really most active on Instagram. And you can also email me alicerosecreative at gmail.com and go to my website, thisisalicerose.com uh, for lots more resources as well. So take very good care and I'll see you soon. Fertility Life Raft is a Quidem Productions podcast.